0: Okay, we're reading Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 to 10 this morning. Read with me. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses nor scrip for your journey. Neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and see what He has for us today. Father, we thank you once again for your blessings upon us, your provision for our lives, and we thank you for this word that you preserve for us today. So, Father, I pray that uh, we would look into it intently that our hearts would be open to its truth, that your spirit would continue to teach us your ways, that we might please you in all things in our lives. So, Father, I pray for a blessing upon every head that's bowed to you today, that you'd be working in every heart, that you'd be meeting every need, and that you would show us your ways. Give us a glimpse more of you, Father, that we might um, seek your face even more. Father, we want more of you. And we pray that the relationship we have with our precious Saviour would grow deeper today as a result of this time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever um, been given a really important job to do or a project to do and you weren't quite sure exactly how you are going to do it but you got all excited and nervous at the same time? Probably happens all the time. hmm? Um, I may have told you this story but I'm going to tell you again anyway. Um, In Year 10... I was in, uh, it was a science class and uh, and our teacher, after having taught us a certain number of things and theories or whatever it was, he gave us a project to do which would give us about eight weeks. He gave us about two months to get it done. And it was, you had to come up with a project and you had to do it together with a partner. So we had to find uh, someone to work together with and you'd choose a project that would demonstrate what you learned in the previous few months. So... I was sitting next to my best friend Ernie at that stage, so Ernie and I were good friends, and, uh, and we said, "Yeah, let's let's do something together." So we uh, we jumped into this uh, thing with both feet. So what we're going to do? So the idea we came up with is that we're going to build a robot. Now you're talking 1987. <laughs> there weren't too many robots around, but we'd seen enough, you know, cartoons about Gigantor and those sorts of things that we knew what we wanted to build. So we decided to, uh, to build a robot. We had eight weeks to do it, and so we set ourselves a task of making this thing, and what was it gonna do? I mean, what does a robot actually do? Well, it had to be able to walk around, and, and eventually we wanted to make it a, a robot that actually cleans. I started in cleaning history very early on. So, so we went to the... Um, do they still have Trash and Treasure these days? Yes. Yeah. Thought, um, we went to the Trash and Treasure market over there. Where was it? Somewhere in the east not East Keylor, Avond- around Avondale Heights, around there. Um, near High Point, I think it was, across the road from High Point. Um, so we went there one day and we were looking for all tits of bits and things that we needed and we ended up finding um, two motors that were, you know the, the windshield wipers of cars? The motors, we got two of those motors, so we put those in our, in our thing and we bought, we found an old vacuum cleaner, <laughs> which cost us $10, so we bought that, we put that one in there. Uh, we found a car battery, so we put that one in there as well. So we bought half the stuff that we needed, and we thought, yeah, we can really, you know, make a go of this. And, and so we started um, working uh, at home. So we set ourselves up in the garage at my place, and we had a soldering iron. Um, and uh, we didn't have enough tin sheet, you know, because they taught us how to cut things and make shapes out of it or whatever. So we ended up taking about, I think we took about five or six huge sheets of tin of the of, uh, of tin from the actual, uh, the, the, the not the woodwork area, but the uh, the metalwork area over there, and we and we made the plan, and we how we were going to put it together, and we, we got help from uh, from our parents and uh, and an uncle, a special uncle of his, who knew a little bit about the sort of stuff. So we put all this thing together, and after after eight uh, weeks, we'd built this thing which was about this high. <laughs> it was seriously, it was about like that, and it was sort of working, and we were running, we were pushing late right towards the end and we had this little control panel that we'd made and all you had to do was just go forward and back and you could actually, it had two motors, so you could go like this, you can go forward, back and then left and right, we had it, all, it, was, it was all worked out. And the vacuum cleaner was on there, but it wasn't too powerful because if I tried running a vacuum cleaner off a car battery, <laughs> it's not too strong. So we, you had to display this thing then, so it was, it was a, there was a special night a science fair night that they had at school. No one had seen anything that we'd done and no one had seen anyone else's project. So at the school that night, we just got it, we just about put it in, uh, made it in time. It had no arms, this thing, didn't have any time to make arms on it. And the head, we fashioned the head and it wasn't screwed on. We had to just put it on top of the thing like that. And we didn't know at that last minute how to get this stupid thing to the school. It weighed a ton, right? It weighed a ton and it was this big. And we're thinking, we can't put this in a car. How do we get it to the, to the school? Yeah. So lucky we had a, a, a concreting uh, neighbour of ours who had a ute, right? So we, we went to him. We said, oh, can you help us out with this uh, getting this thing over there? He goes, yeah, yeah sure, sure. So he came over. We loaded this thing on the, on the back of this ute so it stood up about <laughs> like that high and it had all these ropes coming off it. It looked like some sort of a um, weapon, I don't know. So we're driving all the way up to Esten with this thing down Military Road and all those things, this big thing hanging off the, off the back of the this ute and we brought it to the actual school and as we walked in, we were late, as my typical style anyway, uh, we got to the, uh, the front door and we looked inside, me and Ernie, we looked inside and, and our fathers were taking, were taking this thing off the, off the ute and trying to set it up and everything like that. And then um, we looked inside and they had tables, all these trestle tables all around this big hall that were lined up all around. And everyone had their little, you know, their little science project <laughs> on these tables. You know, one guy had done a little volcano and he put a little bit of, you know, bicarbonate soda in there and it went over the top. Another one did something else. Another one... So all these little projects and here we came, ready to make the grand entrance in this (laughs) big hall. (laughs) With this (laughs) massive robot about this (laughs) week. Anyway, so we got ourselves psyched up for it and we looked at our teacher at the end of the thing and he looked at us because we told him about this amazing robot that we were building. And he sort of said, hurry up and get this thing in here, right? So everyone was busy with their things. They had The tables were lined up on the side. And we were going to make a huge display, a demonstration in front of everyone with this robot that was going to walk all the way from the, from the front door all the way to the other end of the hall, which was about three lengths of this, <laughs> right? So our teacher looked at us and we lined up this robot at the front door over there and I remember the look on his face and everyone started turning around to see what was going on what's the, the huge commotion that's happening and we're there supremely confident as we always were and we started this thing going so as, it, as it's going along we're looking and people are going is that moving by itself? and they, they, were, they were making all these types of comments and then what happened as we drove this, this thing was moving along um, and everyone's watching us the axle broke on one of the actual wheels <laughs> So when one of the axles breaks, what happens is, on the left-hand side, the wheel sort of broke or bent like that, and so this thing started to turn like this. And I went to stop, and it wouldn't turn off. (laughs) So as we're watching this thing, which weighs half a tonne, going down this thing, it started hitting the tables (laughs) of all of these people that had set up their little science projects. And it was knocking tables <laughs> left ones, And we couldn't control the stupid thing. So we, um, we eventually got it to stop and we brought it to the front over there. And the teacher goes, well, what have you made of yours? huge. You know what I mean? And we said, well, sorry, it looks like we've broken an axle. But let us show you what it can do. So he goes, well, what can it do? We said, it's a house cleaning robot. It cleans your home. And he said, really? Show us how that works. So we flipped the switch for the uh, vacuum cleaner to go on. And you could hear a pin drop. The motor went... He goes, is it on? And we said, yeah, it's on. Give it a go. So he grabs a tissue and he put it in front of the nozzle. (laughs) And the tissue barely moves. But... Good memories like that don't you have school memories like that, which are just wonderful. Anyway, we had a lot of fun with that thing and um, and uh, Ernie's now a real estate agent, I don't know what's happened to him. he's gone off the rails, but uh, we um we had a good time uh, building that thing and, and there was a lot of laughs around it as well and uh, it was a it was a good time. but my point with that with that particular story is that it was one of those those moments in our lives where, You get excited about something, but it's also fearful because if you've got a time limit, you have to get it done. And if you don't get it done, you might look silly in front of other people or you may not, you know, you may not do it. And we had to work together as a a team. And, And in essence, when Jesus told his disciples, he said, you 12, come over here. I've got a job for you to do. I'm going to break you up into pairs and I'm going to send you. I want you to take what I've taught you now and I want you to go and I want you to go to all the different towns and villages in Israel and I want you to bring them this particular message and you've got this much time to do it and this is what you're going to expect. When you get there, I am certain that they would have been excited but fearful at the same time because they didn't know what to expect. The first time they'd been away from the Lord, they'd been following him closely, he'd been with them every day and now all of a sudden he was sending them out on their own. And Jesus was about to give them a monumental task, a very, very important job. Um, They had a mission. They had a mission to proclaim and let everyone know that the Messiah was here and they had to get themselves ready for him. Turn with me, turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 because they had a different message to the message of John the Baptist for instance and i want to explain to you what message they were delivering to the uh, the people in israel Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1 speaks to us specifically about the time that god would send John the Baptist to actually proclaim and prepare the nation of israel for the coming of this messiah remember this this promise had been given a long time before and in many different ways. And God had made a special provision and said, before the Saviour comes, before the Messiah arrives, before the special person that I've designated arrives on this planet, I'm going to send someone else to prepare the way for him. And when you see him, and when he starts saying to you that prepare the way of the Lord, get ready. Because it's about to happen. So in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, we see a description of John the Baptist's job. This is the job that he was given. It says in uh, 40, verse 1, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith the Lord, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. So what was the message of John the Baptist? When he came... When he arrived on the scene, his message or his job was to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And your Bibles will have capital L, capital O, capital R and a capital D, the glory of the Lord. In verse verse 3, it says, prepare you the way of the Lord. And then in verse 5, it says, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. That is the God of the universe. That's his name. Okay. where John the Baptist was preparing the way for God, saying, he's on his way. Get yourselves ready here. Make sure that everything's ready to go because God himself is going to land soon. God himself will be here. They would have prepared themselves for that that coming. The disciples, on the other hand, or the apostles that had been sent by the Lord, had a different message to that. What was their message? He's here! (laughs) He's here! He's arrived. John the Baptist was saying, get yourselves ready. He's here. And make sure that you you are definitely ready to receive him because your king has arrived. And your job now is to prepare your hearts to make sure you receive him as your king and you're ready to bow the knee to him because God's promised Messiah is here. The apostle's job here wasn't something that was done in a day. It wasn't something where he'd send them out and then they'd come back. The whole purpose of this, it was to last literally weeks. It wasn't something you could do overnight. They were going to the villages one after the other and they were having to stay in homes one after the other until they, their message was finished in that place and then they'd move on from there to the next one and to the next one. Remember, there's only six groups, six teams, who had to cover Israel and the towns in Israel. They had a job to do. It wasn't a, small, wasn't a small job. They'd be gone for a good time. And during this time, they'd learn how to rely on the Lord, how, how to rely on God for their provision. But what was beautiful about the whole thing is as he was sending them out, they'd be forced into situations where they'd have to exercise their faith, where they'd be forced to make a decision and a choice. Do I go back? Do I stay? Do I speak? Do I not? And through this whole time, they were being moulded into the men that that the Lord would have them to be. They didn't understand maybe how God's power might have worked. But when Jesus sends them out and says, I'm going to send you out with nothing, absolutely zero, you're going to rely on me for your provision. That is a test that would uh, test the, uh, the best of us. And this was the first time they'd ever done it. The first time in their lives that Jesus was saying, all right, now you go out, go, go, go. But it would be exactly the type of experience they needed. Exactly the type of thing they they would need in their lives and need to experience because later on in their lives, when he was, after he'd been crucified, after he had risen from the grave, and then he ascended into heaven, they were going to have to do it again. In a, in a much greater way in a, in a, in a, in a much more um, uh, stressful way because they'd be attacked and they'd all die eventually for their faith this was their test their pilot program for this this was their call to Israel now and later on they'd have to repeat it in an in even more dramatic fashion these few weeks would ultimately prepare them for the really big mission when Jesus had gone had gone back to heaven. And they had the monumental job of being the foundational members of the church of Christ. They were the foundation. In fact, it mentions their names. It says the names of the 12 apostles are going to be the foundation of the new Jerusalem. Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Let me just recap quickly the three points, three important points that we raised last time, (coughs) last message. First point, there comes a time for training to turn into action. There comes a time for training to turn into action. These men that Jesus called his disciples had been given a special name now. They'd been called now apostles. And he'd sent them out with a special message. And in this passage, a disciple, where a disciple was someone who followed, an apostle was someone who was sent. Okay, There are two different, two different ways. And those, those words mean two different things. Last week I shared that there is also a transition that's required from us, where they went from simply followers to apostles. That's the same sort of expectation that the Lord has from us. Yes, we follow the Lord our entire lives, but there comes a time when God says, go on, I've got a job for you to do. And everyone has, every one of us has a job. Every one of us has a job. The scripture makes that very, very clear. The question is whether we are one ready for the job when the Lord calls us to go, and two whether we've actually learnt, followed, been faithful enough, and acquired enough for us to have the courage to say, "Okay, where you send me, I'm going to go." Every one of us has a job to do. Every one of us, not just a pastor or a deacon or a missionary. Or don't look at one of the challenges that we have as as a church, and I believe in Christendom, is that people separate the clergy from everyone else. I've been called to do this job, but I will guarantee you, I will guarantee you, you've been called to do something, either this job or something else. But there is something that God wants you to do. What that is, only you can know that. I can't know it for you. I can't answer it for you. But if you're not doing it, then you can't possibly be happy in your life. So if you want to be fulfilled in your life, do what God calls you to do. And my challenge to to you last week was that people have dreams and goals in their lives. They set themselves pathways to careers and all types of things like that. And they put a lot of effort into planning things, to making sure they get to where they want to go what resources do I need? What time do I need? Who can I rely on? And all those different things that we put together and we say, all right, it'll take me this many years to complete a degree or a college course or VCE or, or to get a job or to do this and do that or to train myself in this area. We all do that and we put the effort in But how many Christians actually have those sorts of goals for their walk with the Lord. And I suppose it was a bit of a rubric to all of us because I don't believe that any of us really Have the types of goals that God has for us, but the Bible sets us also many goals that we should be aiming for and achieving to become the men and women God wants us wants us to become. I gave three examples. I said, worst one to become a teacher. Every Christian is called to become a teacher. Every Christian, bar none. And you can can give any excuses that you like about, I'm not prepared, I'm not ready, I'm not smart, I'm not this and I'm not that. God calls you to be a teacher. (coughs) He may not call you to be a teacher in front of uh, a thousand people or ten people, but you can be a teacher to one person. And God calls us all to be teachers. God calls us all to be prayer warriors. The expectation is that we pray without ceasing that we pray and, we, and we, we go before the throne of God on a constant basis, on a regular basis, that we had to be people of prayer, nothing less. And my final one, which was meant to, to really be the sledgehammer over the, uh, the noggin, was that God calls us to be perfect. Perfect. And I know that the automatic reaction to perfection is that can't do it, not going to bother to try And it is the exact opposite response that God expects from his children. The Bible tells us very clearly that he has given us everything we need to live godly lives in this world, not the next, in this world and now. So when we come up with excuses to say, oh, it's too hard, I can't reach that that thing. What we are simply saying is, I'd rather follow what my flesh says and what the world says rather than what God says. My challenge last week was that we cannot spend the rest of our day simply being students without putting what we have learned into practice. It's in more important, let me put it to you plainly, it's more important to put what you have learned into practice than learning it in the first place. Because when you fill up your head with knowledge without ever using it, the Bible says you're in danger of becoming one, a hypocrite, because you know things that you should be doing and you don't, And second of all, the other challenge is that you can be lifted up with pride. That knowledge and the huge head full of knowledge without using it makes a person very proud. There's two dangers with not doing what you learn. We must set our, our goals to be as he is, to do as he says, to live as he would live and nothing less. Our goal should be to be like Jesus Pure and simple. Was he perfect? Yes. Then our goal should be every day to be more and more like him. Nothing less. Nothing less than that. Has he told us how to do it? Yes. If we would simply put the time in to learn how what he has told us. And if we believe, then we can achieve what he's called us to. The second point I made was the power only comes from Jesus. Jesus sent his, his apostles out. And he basically said to them, he basically says in verse 1 of chapter 10, he called unto him his 12 disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. The beautiful thing is that we don't have to have this power in ourselves. We don't have it, obviously. We, got, we, don't, we don't have the power to save ourselves in the first place. We need him to save us. But he also gives power to be able to fulfill whatever he's called you and me to. If God asks us to go and do something, he doesn't leave us without the ability to do it. He gives it to us. He gives it to us every time. The beautiful thing here is that the strength of Jesus is perfected in our weakness. And when we realize how weak we actually are, his strength actually comes shining through, and we glorify him. His grace is always sufficient for us. The only thing that we can bring to this thing is our submission and our weakness for his power to be displayed. And there is always purpose to his power. He doesn't give a person power so they can willingly throw it around. God's, the power that the Lord gives is always for a particular reason. It's always either to serve other people and at the same time it glorifies him. It's not to serve, never to serve ourselves. The power and grace comes from Jesus. That's the same power and grace that he gave to his apostles. And my final point is that he named every one of his apostles. People are special to God. Name, your name is important to him. If your name and you as a person weren't important to God, he wouldn't bother to write your name down in a book. He wouldn't bother to have, to have uh, spoken to that thief that was next to him on a cross, who simply said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. <laughs> Jesus in the middle of actually dying for the sins of the entire world. The Son of God hung on a cross and there's a thief next to him. And the thief gets into the ear of the Son of God and says, can you remember me? And Jesus says, don't worry, I'll remember you. You're going to be with me. Jesus cares about people. He cares about the individual. That's why he cares about people's names. That's why he recorded the the names of these 12 men who he sent out. They were special to him. Like a doting parent who loves to see his children grow. That's what he got out of this. God loves people and so should we. Let's continue with this. Look at verse 5 in chapter 10. Jesus continues to give them instruction about their mission. This is in verse 5 and 6, these 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. You know, there are some people, you ever had certain people knock on your door at home to share a gospel, or some sort of a message with you? Okay, they're probably, in most cases, either going to be a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. Okay, those two particular groups have taken this passage and have said, you know something, God says that when we share the gospel, the one way you do it is to go out two by two, like Jesus sent out the apostles, and you're meant to go and knock on every door in the suburb and, and share the gospel. That's why they come to your house two by two. Because they take this passage and they do something with it. They see this passage as a seminal instruction on how to spread the gospel. But it's no such thing. It's not. We mustn't make the mistake to take this passage as completely representative of what we are to do today. You know why? Because there are things in it that we are not meant to do. Very obviously. This was indeed a specific job for these specific men. Not necessarily all aspects relate to us. They were designated the term apostle. I don't know any apostles that are living today, to be honest with you. There aren't none, unless they managed to survive his last couple of thousand years, but I know that they're all dead. These men were designated a specific title with a specific job to do. We aren't to do their job. This this particular way of doing this was a Jesus command to prepare them, to give them what they needed in order to declare a message. So, what then did Jesus command his disciples to do? Actually, he tells them, I only want you to go to the lost sheep of Israel. Only to go to the lost sheep of Israel. Why did he use this terminology? Go back to Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 6 with me. Jeremiah chapter 50. Verse 6, it says there in verse 6, My people, he's talking about Israel, have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. They had no resting place. And when Jesus arrived on the scene and tells his disciples, I want you to go to the lost sheep of Israel, he was essentially echoing what God knew about them then, is that they were still the same then in Jesus' day. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, he repeats the same thing again. He says, he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The house of Israel was all the Jews. And the lost sheep which pertained to the house of Israel were the sheep, not the wolves. He wasn't sent for the wolves. He was sent for the sheep to rescue the sheep because they had been led astray by the wolves who were devouring them. Now, why would this be the case? Well, the coming of Jesus was a fulfillment of promises God had made many, many years before, thousands of years before, some 3,000 years before at least, okay? Where God had even promised Adam and Eve that he would send them one who would crush the head of the serpent. That was written down in Genesis, right? He then promised Moses and the people of Israel when he rescued them out of, uh, out of Egypt, he said, I'm going to raise up another one like Moses, Another prophet, and he's the one you have to listen to. So he repeated the same thing again, but he gave him a little bit more then. When it came to King David, he promised King David, he said, There will be one who will sit on your throne perpetually. Your throne will always exist, your throne will, will not be destroyed. When he spoke to Isaiah, God told Isaiah, which he then wrote down again. That he was going to send someone who would be a suffering servant. Someone who'd be the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. He promised him that he would be born and he told him he'd be born in Bethlehem. He told him under what circumstances he'd be born in. He told him all the details that he'd be born of a virgin. So all these things were written down over a period of one and a half thousand years. So from the beginning of Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, God had given All these promises which the the Jews had the responsibility to write down. So if you take a list of all the prophecies about Jesus, you have some people estimate there are some like 300 prophecies about all the details about his life. So who were the people entrusted with these words? Israel. Israel was entrusted with these words. Other countries didn't have. It was written in Hebrew. They were meant... To be the custodians of this word. And guess what their job was? To be the ones to recognize the Messiah when he arrived. They knew, or they should have known, exactly what he would look like. They should have known exactly under what circumstances. They should have known exactly his message to them. That was their job. They were entrusted with that information. They should have realized when the Messiah had arrived, for their job was not only to recognize, but to receive. And then they were to declare him to the whole world. You see, when the Messiah sat on his throne, he was meant to rule the entire world from there. So their job was to be the the people who waited for, recognized, received, and installed as king. That's why Jesus... Rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. That's why, they called, that's why they praised Hosanna the king. He was the king. They were expecting him to arrive. There were some who, who recognized him, but there were many who didn't see him coming at all. And he was meant to be the one who came and to defeat the devil, to crush the head of the serpent. So Jesus went only to the house of Israel and then only to a specific part of Israel because he knew that much of their leaders, many of their leaders were corrupt. And all they cared about was not waiting for the Messiah to come. They were, all they cared about was controlling their own little territory and that no one would threaten it. That's why Herod had babies murdered when he found out the Messiah might be born. So he went then all up and down the coast killing children two years and under. That's why the the uh, leaders, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers of Jesus' day attacked him from every possible angle. And then at the end, when they couldn't win the argument with him, they thought the only way we can organise or get rid of this guy is to kill him. And so they used the Romans to do that. So... The difference between what Jesus called his apostles to do and us is that our message is not to the Jews now, is it? Our message is is to the entire world. That's different now. It's changed. As most of you already know, there are no apostles today, but there are witnesses. The Bible calls us witnesses, but even that is different to the original terminology. See, if you're a witness originally... If you were a witness, and most of the references in the New Testament refer to the witnesses, they were literally people who saw the risen Jesus. They were the ones who had seen him before, the ones who saw him die, the ones who knew he was buried. And then these are the same people that said, hang on a sec, he's back. I've seen him. That's why Paul says there are more, more than 500 of these people at that stage. And Paul says in his writings, Go and ask them. There's plenty of them still alive. Ask them what they saw. They were literally the witnesses. So what's the difference between being a witness then and being a witness now? The difference is that we may not have physically seen Jesus, but we've experienced him. But we know him. He's revealed himself to us. We're witnesses that the gospel message changed our lives. That the gospel message gave us hope. That the gospel message revealed to us that the saviour is alive and he's actually given his life for us. And there's hope in him. That's our witness. Our witness to this world is that Jesus Christ is the son of God and the saviour of all mankind, not just Israel. Look at verse 7 and 8. It says there, As you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely you have received, freely give. So Jesus told them where they were to go first of all. And now he's telling them what you have to do once you get there. Notice the message is not the gospel as we know it. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He didn't say to them, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He didn't say that. What does it mean? Is it the same gospel as we preach today? No, it's not. It wasn't the same gospel. It was a different message. You might be surprised, but one very important fact is that Jesus hadn't been crucified. He hadn't shed his blood for the sins of the world. Hadn't hadn't been brought like a lamb to the slaughter. Hadn't allowed his body to be broken on a cross. Hadn't risen on the third day. Hadn't ascended into heaven. See, we, Our gospel is centred around the cross and the resurrection. Their gospel, their good news was that the king has arrived. There were two different messages going on. The simple message was that the Messiah had come, the king had arrived, the God who had saved Israel had gone, that had gone before her in the wilderness had been born into the world. The man who would crush the devil had arrived and the kingdom of heaven was at their doorstop. Their job was to recognise him, receive him, glorify him, repent of their sin and seek to live for him. And the miracles that are mentioned here were simply a way for the people to recognise that's the guy. So when they perform miracles of healing and casting out devils, that was meant to be a signal to them, like a flashing light that said, this is the guy, this is the real deal. This is not not some fake. People, People are being healed because he is the God who created the universe. An interesting point though, go go to Acts chapter 1 verse 8 with me. Is that even though their declaration to Israel was that the Messiah had come and they ultimately rejected that message. Look at what happens in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Is it still too warm in here? Yeah. Is that on that that thing over there? Yeah. Okay you got that window open there, Don Dean? After Jesus had risen from the grave, he'd been crucified, he'd risen from the grave, he's got his, he's got his disciples around him, and just before he's about to take off and head in, and go straight to heaven, the Bible says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem... And in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. See the difference here? But the difference also is. So he's told now he's the disciples and apostles, I'm going to give you power. Remember he gave him power in that in those few weeks? Now he's doing it again. And he's saying, You wait, there's power gonna come upon you from the Holy Spirit, and you're gonna have a job to send this message. Starting in Jerusalem, starting here, working out to Judea, going to Samaria and going to the uttermost parts of the earth. That covers every people group in existence at that stage. He gave them power to be witnesses again. And this time the message was the entire world. And that's the message that we've been called to send. Look at verse 9 and 10 of Matthew chapter 10 now he tells them what they are to bring with them provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses nor script for your journey neither two coats neither shoes nor yet staves for the workman is worthy of his meat one of the hallmarks I'm not sure if you're aware of this but when you chose and this, is, this wasn't just unique to Jesus that he had that he was a spiritual leader and he had disciples following him There were other people who came before Jesus who did a similar sort of thing. They were spiritual teachers. They had people following them. And there were people even after Jesus who set themselves up as spiritual leaders and had disciples following them. Do you remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist had disciples following him. It was a common thing in those days. If you were a spiritual leader and the people and certain individuals believed you were sent by God, you know what they'd do? They'd pick up and leave and then follow that person. It wasn't unique. They did it with John the Baptist. They did it with other other men. But the interesting part about all of that is that if you were following a particular master and you gave up your previous lifestyle, it was their responsibility to look after you. It was their responsibility to feed you, clothe you, house you, do whatever, whatever was necessary to look after you because you had put your life in their hands. And Jesus knew that. You'll, you'll, you'll know that there was a treasurer in this particular group that Jesus had, and it was Judas. There was a, the reason there was a treasurer is because they were receiving money in, they may have been doing certain things, they may have been getting donations, and that money was used to feed, to keep going. That's why Judas got upset when the woman came to him and it was and repented before him, and she was it was Mary. She came before him and she she anointed him with oil and perfume and those sorts of things, which would have cost an enormous amount of money. And who got upset about that? Judas got upset because that could have been sold, we could have added it to the kitty over here, and then he, he sort of added, Oh, we could have given it to the poor. He was responsible, he was, he was a thief as well. The disciples here, while they were following Jesus, understood that Jesus was responsible to look after them, spiritually and physically. They were organised for that way. What is amazing about Jesus' instruction here is that they weren't allowed to take anything with them. Anything. Not only were they, they told not to bring any gold, which is the most precious one. He goes, you're not bringing any gold bars of you. You're not bringing any gold coins with you, that's for sure. And by the way, you're not gonna bring any silver with you. That's a bit like saying, um, you're not allowed to take $10 notes or $20 notes. I'm not gonna let you take dollar coins. And then he tells them, you're not even taking brass with you. No, no gold, no silver, and no brass. They're not even, not even a five cent piece I want you to take with you. You're not taking anything with you. And they had no credit cards in those days, so it would have been a bit difficult to get extra cash. There goes their idea of relying on money. On top of that, he tells them, don't bring extra coats. So if it gets cold, I don't care. He does care. But he said to them, I don't want you to bring any extra coats with you if if it gets cold. I don't want you to bring extra shoes with you. So if your shoe breaks or something like that, don't worry, it'll be taken care of while you're on the road. You had to rely on on the Lord for that as well. Go with you with the clothes on your back and that's pretty much what I want you to take with you. And if they couldn't find shelter, they were at the mercy of the elements. If you can't find a house to stay in and he gives instruction about who to go to later on and and, and how long to stay with them, if they couldn't find a house to stay in, you just arrive at a town. With no preparation, no nothing, you arrive at a town and Jesus says, when you get to the town, ask around and if you find a house, you find a house. They they would have been at the mercy of the elements if they couldn't find a house, if the house wasn't provided. But you know what they knew? That God's mercy is much better than the mercy of the elements. God was merciful. And he would have provided every time. And finally, he says to them, don't bring a stave. Anyone know what a stave is? Yeah, it's a big stick. It's a big walking stick, right? And, and they were so common in those days to walk around with a stick. Not only did it help you walk or if you're on, on, on difficult terrain, it would help you to, to, to hold and find your feet. It was a third foot sometimes, just to, just to give you balance. But they came in handy. You know something? When a wolf came to attack you or there was a marauding lion or something along lines, or someone came, bandits came to try to steal and beat you up, a stick would always be very handy. So Jesus says, you're not taking those sticks with you either. That would have left them totally vulnerable to whatever came their way. So what was Jesus saying to them? While you're out, even when you're not with me, I can provide for your shelter, your clothing, your shoes, your food, your protection. I can, I can give you everything that you need. You just have to rely on me and trust me. And even though we're not travelling the world, even though you and I don't go door knocking and, and, and just arrive at a different town and we don't know anyone there, so we have to rely completely on the Lord... Even though we don't go around doing these things these days and we have a lot more than the clothes on our backs, there's an important lesson for us to learn here that God is able to provide for them and he's able to provide all these things for us. You see, it's a very small thing for the God who spoke the universe into existence to provide us with clothes and food and a house. These are nothing to him. These are absolutely minimal God can provide everything you need. He won't provide you everything you necessarily want, but he'll always provide you everything you need. And this is an important lesson for us. The apostles had to take a step of faith. They had to leave everything they had behind, go no money, no clothes, no uh, protection. They had to rely on the Lord And they were called to obey. But the beautiful thing was is that sometimes when your faith is put to the test, it allows your faith to grow. Is that when when you're put in a position of trust, that you have to trust him rather than trust your own resources, it forces you to actually trust him more. And your faith grows stronger as a result. So when the trials come up in your lives, when difficult times come up, don't look at them as an opportunity to complain or say woe was me. Look at every trial and every issue that comes up in your life as an opportunity for your faith to grow because testing is not a bad thing for us. The Bible says there is nothing that can come against us, that can defeat us. The Bible also says that everything that comes our way is for our benefit, good and bad. We have to trust God for that. So when you see you're facing an obstacle, and every one of us has our obstacles. Some have much bigger obstacles. Some have smaller obstacles. Whatever your obstacle is, look at it as an opportunity to get closer to the Lord. Because I will guarantee you that after the disciples or the apostles went out and they trusted him, they went out with nothing and they came back, it says they came back. They didn't come back disheartened. They did not come back complaining. They came back excited about what God had had done through them. So even in the midst of our trials, get excited. Get excited and look for what God's doing. Because there may be something in it he wants you to learn. Or there may be something in that trial that he wants you to do that will bless someone else. Look at the end of that verse. It says, For the workman is worthy of his meat. For the workman is worthy of his meat. So he says, Don't worry about all these things. The workman is worthy of his meat. He finishes with those words. But what does it mean? Well, not only is this principle found throughout the Bible, but in this phrase, Jesus was equating what the disciples were doing with workers. They were labourers. And they were labouring. Ultimately, they were workers For God himself. They'll work us for the Lord. Therefore he would reward them. But because they were in essence. um, Bringing good news to people. And working for them. God was going to use those same people. To reward them. There's an inference here. That those who deliver the words of God. Who work for God. Should be seen in a positive way. By the people who are benefited by that. that. Isn't that fair enough? You know there are a number of what we would call honourable professions in the world. Now, everyone likes to think that what they do is an honourable thing, but there are some professions that that are seen a little bit more higher than others, that, that that garnish a little bit more respect. Now, if you look at people like firefighters, don't people respect firefighters and, and the, the, they risk their lives to protect people? And police are probably the same way. Maybe there are, there are people who through intellectual rigour, are trying to benefit mankind as well. Maybe scientists and writers, historians who put the study in so they can benefit mankind from what they're learning. And you look at people like you know, maybe doctors or judges, ambassadors from other countries, maybe they're seen in, in a slightly different way because they are representative of something special, which we, we, we don't take as, as much for granted As other types of jobs if you know what I mean but there is one honorable there's one job that's honorable in particular because God makes it honorable with respect to the Apostles God had said to them I'm going to give you a message deliver to these people the most important aspect of what they were to do wasn't the miracles. It was to deliver the message that the Messiah had arrived, that God was here, and that people would to prepare themselves for that. It was an utterly noble endeavour. There wasn't a more noble thing that could be done in the entire planet than to actually be the deliverers of God's words to people. They should have been received and treated like the highest ambassadors from the most powerful country in the world. Did you know that you're an ambassador from heaven to this planet? Are you aware of that? Are you aware that the job we have is utterly honourable, noble in its cause? We have been called to the highest standard possible because we represent heaven. When people see us, they should be seeing the representatives of God Himself on this planet. There is no more noble cause. There is no more worthy job to do. There is nothing that is higher than that. Yes, we do our daily jobs, and you might be respected for what you do. You may be famous for what you do. But there is nothing more honourable and noble than that cause, which is to represent Jesus Christ on this world, in this world. In a nutshell, the apostles represented Christ, and so do we. We represent God himself. Just go down to the end of this passage and we'll close with this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. Think about this. When we speak to the people of this world, we are speaking to them as people with a job as people with a a, a noble position and a noble job. So when Jesus told his disciples in verse 40, he says, He that receiveth you, receiveth me. And he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth the righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give to drink... One of these little ones, a cup of cold water only, in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. Do you understand what he's speaking? He's not speaking about children here. Sometimes people take this passage and they say, "Oh, if you give a, a glass of water to a little child," he's not speaking about it. He's speaking about his disciples here. He's speaking about the apostles. And he's saying to them, if they receive you, you know who they're receiving? Me. And if they give you a cup of water, I will never forget what they've done for you. Ever. Mm. You are special in God's eyes. You are absolutely special. There is no, no good thing that the world can do to us that God will ever forget you might say, well, how does that fit in the whole scheme of things? Not your problem. Don't have to worry about it. God says he will not forget a glass of water that's given to you because you're a Christian. When we help each other, God remembers those things. It's important to him. But let's see each other the right way. Do you understand what I'm saying? The Bible tells us to esteem one another more highly than ourselves. The Apostle Paul says that. Esteem everyone else higher than you. The Bible says that when you look at each other, you're not seeing just average men and women. You are seeing the very children of God who are representatives on this planet, who have an, an enormous job to do. And the beautiful thing is the two main message i want you to take away with you today is who you are the three main messages who you are today and that jesus christ is able to supply every one of your needs there is nothing he will not send his children out and forget about them he doesn't do that if he did it with them he's doing it with us now there is nothing there's nowhere you can go where he is not there there is nothing you can do that he will not be supporting you if it's his will And finally, understand that we've been called to be witnesses. We are his witnesses. And in a sense, we are his hands and feet in this world. That's why, the body, that's why the Bible calls us the body of Christ. Do you understand? The body of Christ is not a piece of bread sitting over there. The body of Christ is you and me who represent him in this world. When we walk, hopefully it's his feet that are moving us. When we use our hands, hopefully it's His hands that are inspiring us. When people see us, they should be seeing Him. And we have a message to deliver. And it's the good news. It's the gospel. We are ambassadors with a very important job. Let's remember who we are and what we have to do. God bless you. Thank you.